well, you've, you're familiar with quality control charts, right? When they first really became a fad, basically, everybody put control charts on everything and they put it on anything they could measure, independent oh, yeah. of whether it actually provided any useful information to improve the process. So I don't really care if it's the shiny new internet of things with wireless connectivity and post-processing to give you a pretty graph. We've been through this before. We should have learned that just because you can doesn't mean it's useful. And more importantly, if it is useful, you actually got to look at it and do something with it. And, and that's all too often missed. Welcome back to a brand new episode of Critical Talks. Today's episode centers on making sense of sensors in manufacturing. And the guest that I'll be talking through the topic with is none other than the magnificent Fred Schenkelberg. Fred is an international authority on reliability engineering. He is the reliability expert at FMS Reliability, a reliability engineering and management consulting firm he founded back in 2004. What he's most known for, though, is Accendo Reliability, a reliability engineering professional development online platform that is wildly successful and super popular among reliability and quality folks. Fred left HB's reliability team, where he helped create a culture of reliability across the corporation with the goal to assist other organizations. His passion is working with teams to improve product reliability, customer satisfaction, and efficiencies in product development, and to reduce product risk and warranty costs. Fred's areas of expertise are reliability program development, accelerated life test design and analysis, reliability statistics, risk assessment, test planning, and training. He has a Bachelor of Science in Physics from the United States Military Academy and a Master of Science in Statistics from Stanford University. Stay where you are as we're about to get started, and please join me in welcoming Fred to the show. Are you ready? Let's go. This is the Critical Talks Podcast with Gabor Sabu. Thought exchange about experiences, lessons from the past, and trends towards the future of the quality profession. Fred, how are you? Hey, pretty good, Gabor. Good to see you again. Well, I actually see you. I think this is my second meeting with you, so it was a pleasure meeting you the other day, but now we get to talk a little bit longer. Oh, absolutely. I've been looking forward to this all week, so uh, <laughs> should be fun. <laughs> so um, where in the world are you, just bef before we get started? Um, well, I'm, I always chuckle at that because I used to live in Vancouver, Washington, and I have to say that's it's not Canada and Washington on the West Coast of the state. And here in California, it's a lot easier. I'm in the San Francisco Bay Area and I live oh, about 70 miles south of San Francisco in a redwood forest. Oh, did you grow up in uh, the Bay Area or up in the uh, Vancouver, Washington area? Oh, no, neither one. I grew up in the Midwest, uh, back where we had four seasons. And uh, Green Bay, Wisconsin is known for having a football team on occasion. So that's where I grew up. Okay. Yeah, those four seasons are kind of hard to come by on the West. I mean, in California, where yeah. we are. <laughs> we, well, you can drive to the mountains if you wanted to get, a, you know, various seasons. But you can always go back home where it's nice. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Okay, so... um so you are a, a real reliability authority. <laughs> I'm happy to, to say well, that just, I'm, you know, from, from your website, your, your, um, your website is, is just amazing. The amount of content and resources and all that kind of good stuff that you put out is, is incredible. And apparently it's wildly popular. Like everyone I've talked <laughs> to, you know, in, within, you know, this realm of, manufacturing quality, reliability, everyone. Oh yeah. I love that website. So <laughs> well, that's good to know. Yeah. yeah. It's good to know. It's, um, been a, a, a passion project, uh, for, I think we took it out as an independent site about eight years ago and it's just steadily grown. And I, by no means am I responsible for all the content on there. I, there's, I think we're up over 50 separate contributors, yourself included with your podcast. So it's a, it's a pleasure to do, create a platform that others can benefit from because it provides an audience and awareness of what you're sharing and working. And it's a 
apparently a really nice resource for people looking for information in this niche because they can just go to one place and they while it's not always really well vetted i try to make sure that what's on there is not just a straight ad and or it has actual value that kind of stuff so it, it uh it seems to have found a nice mark uh fit for both contributors and for people looking to learn something oh yeah i mean it i always you know i default to your to your website when i'm looking for something especially uh you know regarding reliability um i i used to have a website um of my own uh, i was a little more specific but what i found was it was really hard for me to get you know traffic um you know to my website from say linkedin or other pages so i wonder do you get a lot of traffic like is it yeah it's yeah. um I mean, it steadily changes and every now and then uh, something changes in the search algorithms that we get dinged a bit, but it grows right back. But we're um, on occasion, we've been close to 100,000 visits for a month. And right oh now, or last six months or so, we're running between 80 and 90,000 visits per month. That's incredible. That's yeah. it's unheard of. I mean, that's that well, just speaks to yeah. yeah. YouTube does a little better than we do, so we still got goals. You know, we we can get better. <laughs> yeah, of course. But YouTube has a lot of different, you know, you know, kind of topics. You know, more on the fun, fun, entertaining side. I mean, not that reliability cannot be entertaining, but exactly, uh, it's it's hard. From what I've seen, it it's kind of hard to to garner a lot of attention. Um, on these very specific and technical topics so <laughs> to hear that you know there is a website or there are websites out there that are very very uh well attended or or uh, visited it's it's very uh i'm happy to hear that well there was a, a a couple of us that we had the same issue you did is our sites as individual consultants our sites were you know it was hard enough just to put content on it and much less every day or every week. And so it wasn't, it, it never did garner much traffic. And so we're sitting around at a conference and talking about that. And he says, well, what the idea came up is why don't we pool our resources? So we'll have three pieces of content per week yeah. and, you know, and do that and maybe that'll work. And so that is kind of the genesis of it. We pulled some existing blogs from our various sites and started reposting stuff and continue to add stuff and then expanded out into podcasts and added those. And so we quickly got to piece of content every day. And now we're doing 20 pieces of content per week. And so it's it's been interesting looking at the analytics of it is how many of our specific posts rank number one um, with Google if you search for it the right way. <laughs> it's funny how that works. <laughs> Everybody oh, okay. can be a number one hit if you search for it the right way. It all depends um, on how you slice and dice the data, right? <laughs> it is, it very much so is. But there's, um, I think in any given week, the last time I looked at the data, uh, there were something like 1,200 pages that were found uniquely. You know, there's some that are very, very popular. They get couple you know a couple or uh, five six hundred visits per day kind of thing and so they dominate it's the you know 80 20 rule in spades there's a top 10 articles tend to dominate most traffic but every single piece we put out there gets visited uh and you know obviously more some more than others uh but it gives us a very long tail of evergreen content some of our very most popular posts have been up there for about six years and they continue to grow and how many people look for them. Oh, wow. That's, uh, that's amazing. So yeah, good content well, never grows old. <laughs> well, that, that's, that's part of it, you know, and you got to refresh it and keep it clean, you know, updated as needed and so on. But uh, maybe we should talk someday about your old site. If you were doing a blog and get that sequenced up here get your writing again. I have no idea if your old site did. I do have plans. I do have plans. Yeah, let's talk offline. Okay. All right. That'd be fun. <laughs> uh, but anyway, um, in reading some of your content, some of the, the blog posts and, and, and all, um, I've seen some, you know, some patterns of uh, the topic that we're about to talk about, you know, show up 
and that is you know using sensors in manufacturing but more specifically making sense of sensors <laughs> in manufacturing yeah. so there's quite a bit of uh you know I don't want to say a misunderstanding out there, but 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 uh, they have been used. They have been sensors have been used in manufacturing for a long time, mm -hmm. so it's not really new. It's really the technology uh, running in the background that has changed things quite a bit. You know, they're all connected now. The computing power that you know um, that um, we are provided is is uh, is incredible, right? So um, and and also purchasing, uh, procuring these sensors and setting them up has become pretty, pretty simple. But what I'm finding, um, I've been involved, you know, in, in projects and uh, in talking to people, uh, what I'm finding is making sense of what it is that you're trying to, um, you know, log or measure or whatever it is in manufacturing. When I say manufacturing, you know, like on the manufacturing floor, it could be, this could be machines, they, this could be anything related to the manufacturing environment. Mm -hmm. Of course, um, you're specialized in reliability. So when it comes to reliability, there's, you know, there's maintenance, there's, you know, predictions, you know, predictive maintenance, there's, mm -hmm. uh, you know, parts, right? How many cycles the machine has run and, and, and you know, different parameters and different environmental conditions within the machine or outside of the machine. So um, the, the options are endless as to what you can track or lock. But what I'm finding is uh, uh, sometimes it's, it's hard for folks to, to at least make a decision or, or make a determination on, make the right choices, right? Um, I've seen that, you know, folks have slapped a lot of sensors on, you know, different machines but ended up, you know, looking at none of the data or nothing, and that's not useful. So, um, for, from a from your perspective and from your experience, decades of experience, like what have you seen? Um, what do you see has changed? What do you see hasn't changed? Well, I like the way you phrase that. It's, I mean, one of the early projects I did when I worked way back when I was in a reliability, I mean, a, a development team, R&D team, and the factory was right outside my door. And so many of our projects were the ones I worked on were not in producing new products. There was a whole team of polymer experts that were doing that. Um, I was more of a statistician. So they had me working on the floor and it connected me into reliability because reducing the variability of our product improved its eventual outcome. The, 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 low, the ones that were near the edges of our specifications drifted out of spec after a while and they were called failures. So reducing the variability in our manufacturing improved the reliability and the performance of our product. So that was one of the projects I worked on. The issue I see today, what I kind of jumping ahead to what I think it's changed is if you don't start with what you're trying to accomplish, then any sensor will get will, will work, right? You'll you'll get data, but if if I'm measuring vibration caused by the forklift driving by, just because I can, mm -hmm. what does that get to do with the vibrate? You know the the cooling temperature stability of our polymer process, um, pretty much nothing. Uh, although I did find that when they forklift would drive by one day when I was measuring our, our products. Um, I, I thought it was the vibration because every time I saw a forklift go by, the data set would just jump all over. I was, we had created a set of measurements where we could monitor the resistivity of this polymer system uh, in real time. And we we're experimenting with it as a way to just monitor the variability and then try to track down well, what's changing, what makes that variability happen. And so for a whole eight shift, I was watching this forklift go back and forth every you know 20 minutes or so. Um, and the variability of our product went all over the map. So turns out after a bunch of weeks of going down that rabbit hole, it was that it was January. And every time the forklift went by, they had, had just previously opened the door to the outside. 
Uh, so the forklift could get out to the truck. So we get this blast of cold air, which I couldn't feel, but our product could. Oh, and, really? Yeah. And so that was our primary hypothesis that it was temperature, but we didn't defect consider that opening and closing the forklift door 20 yards away would affect that at all. My point is, is that we had a very specific thing we were looking for. And so we're, we were trying to figure out and create the sensors we needed to monitor the product's real-time performance in that particular case. But if we were looking for, uh, say, bearing wear, maybe we would have used oil analysis or we would have used uh, vibration, right? But I can slap vibration sensors on everything these days. Like you said, is they're, they're, they come down in cost. They're easy to apply. Um, unfortunately, too easy. So you could just put them everywhere. Yep. But if you don't know how to read a signal or what it indicates, it's of little to no value. Um, and so it's what I learned early on, part of it was because the sensors were expensive and difficult to set up. So you didn't just go out and try, put sensors everywhere. We deliberately thought through what is it we need to know? And then how do we, then it was, how do we measure it? And so the making sensors easy helps us to skip that step. Yeah. It's kind of like, you slap it on and just forget about it. Uh, well, there's that. That's a whole separate problem. It doesn't matter. I mean, there was plenty of factories I've been in where they, you know, they spent a lot of money putting equipment sensors on or products, quality sensors on or whatever, and then they ignored it. That's a management problem. That's, that's just, you know, it, I think that's a whole different class. But the, the basic premise of doing something manually and versus automating it you know, and putting an automated wireless sensor on something is instead of going out there with a probe and, and measuring it, or as the engineers in that factory I worked in years ago, I mean, they could hear when something was getting out of alignment or they could feel it. They just had a sense for the equipment. Yeah. Nowadays, our equipment and sensors can, you know, get us past just the really gross vibrations. We can sense things much sooner if we know what we're looking for, right? And, and part yes. of it is, is yeah. we don't learn those signals. We don't learn those nuances. We don't do it manually. Um, oh, this might date me, but I was in the army. I was uh, initially enlisted and I was a Jeep driver. And one of the steps was to um, do a tune-up on this Jeep and it had a distributor cap. And I says, you know, where's the dial to adjust the distributor so I can get the timing right. I had a timing gun, but there's no, I didn't know how to change anything that would actually affect timing. And so the motor sergeant comes out, oh, is this, loosen this nut that's holding the distributor crap in place and just rotate it. Just move the cap slightly. The whole box, the whole assembly, just move it to the left or right in its mount and that'll change its timing. <laughs> like that's not in the manual. <laughs> <laughs> nowadays you know we don't use strobe lights on a fan belt to check timing you know we have computer printouts and audit, all this other stuff uh but if you don't have a way to read that computer stuff and understand the signals it's in and you can't set the timing and yeah. the same with alignment same with all these other things so it, some of it takes more skill some of it gives you more nuanced data it's not a gross measurement anymore it's a very sophisticated measurement and that creates barriers to getting up to speed at what it means and how to interpret it, those kind of things. So it's, yeah, what I think has changed is that it used to be difficult and we would have to think it through and make, and you wouldn't invest in setting up a system that takes a lot of engineering time and, and costs to set up unless it was going to pay back. And then you had management teams that said, hey, I need to pay back on this. I need this to actually work. And so you were incentivized to master that measurement system and make differences now it's the new bright shiny thing let's put them all over the factory and see what we get see what or, happens right? yeah, or, you, or you get factory like a bottling uh, a bottler that's filling bottles or cans or whatever they might have 40 sensors on it for various parts of its function and streaming off terabytes of data every day and i why <laughs> you know <Bottle? laughs> This is bottle manufacturing. 
Yeah, not the manufacturing bottles, but filling them, a filler. Oh, filling them. Okay. Yeah. 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 You know, and they're looking at uh, is the bottle there? Is it the right direction? Is it filled correctly? Is the cap on? Is this gear actuating? Is this turning valve? You know, oh, there's yeah. a million things you can measure on it. And so the factories are loading them up with all these things they can measure. And that's the one where you just overwhelmed by why are they measuring this? Why do I need this? And then people keep it just in case. Just in case. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I do see, um, you know, measuring a lot of bunch of different things, just not just for the sake of measuring it, but like for say traceability, like for regulatory purposes. I know that's yeah, yeah purity and contamination and, and seals. And, you know, if you're making a medicine and you want to make sure the mix is right and that it's being, you know, mixed well and the right percentages. I get that. Those, and, but and that's, been, ne that's necessary, right? That's, right. A, that's a requirement. That's, but it doesn't have to be automated. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It, it, if it's a good process and, and this applies not just the sensors, right? If you have a good process, then you can automate it. If you have a bad process, you can automate a bad process and still have a bad process. <laughs> yeah. I've lived through it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, but I, I love what you said about uh, those little studies or experiments that you guys ran back then with your handheld, you know, sensors and whatnot, because it really speaks to the experimentation part that is missing a lot of times because it's so easy to, you know, to set up these sensor sensors and just start streaming data by the terabyte uh, terabyte and uh, instead of it's really a thought process right and in manufacturing like on the manufacturing floor everything really comes down to physics like how things work and yep. you have to think through what it is that you're trying to you know see the effect the effect of or learn something from and you have to think through the physics of how it works, right? And uh, based on, you know, those, I guess, variables that you're trying to collect, those pairs or whatever, you may end up with, you know, different sensors and different, I guess it's, it's not a, what I'm finding is, you know, especially with the, uh, the, you know, this whole data analysis and data science, putting algorithms everywhere, right? We have this probabilistic approach to everything. But when it comes to like manufacturing, of course, there are probabilities and all that. Statistics has a huge role, but at the end of the day, it really comes down to physics. <laughs> and uh, those laws are, I mean, <laughs> you can't really... Uh, yeah, gravity uh, doesn't care. It's doesn't care. It's always there. Uh, energy well, doesn't care. Yeah. yeah. One of the things I run into, and it was the same system I was experimenting, was experimenting with, with this, this when the forklifts went running by me, mm -hmm. was um, one of the ways to use the sensor. I mean, it obviously always starts with what's your objective. And for me, it was reducing variability with this one example. But it could be to monitor. Um, you know, a brush motor to for when the brushes are wearing out or uh, is the alignment or something else going out of whack? Let's measure that. And or is this wearing to a point, you know, our brakes have had little chunks of metal in them. So when the brake pad goes far enough, it that's technically a sensor. It's pretty low tech, right? But it makes just the right sound that we don't like it. Or yep. we tell our neighbor to go change their brakes or fix their brakes. Um, it doesn't have to be sophisticated. And so sometimes it's too easy to just get the fanciest, greatest thing with all the features, but you don't really need it. So start with the objective. Now, in this particular case, we knew what the objective was, but we didn't really know what the problems were. So the experimentation was trying to figure out what those correlations were, right? There's already studies and papers out about how brushes wear in a brush motor or bearings wear in the signals you get or oil analysis, the signals you get. I mean, there's, there are already lots of evidence out there that you can refer to in, in many, many cases, but sometimes you just didn't have a way to measure this before. Now you got to go sit down there and do the experiment and, and monitor it. And so I was 
sitting next to an extruder. We're running our, our base product through it and we're measuring its resistance as the primary feature of this system we're making. And uh, every now and then the guy that was running the, the machine would go up to the rack above the uh, extruder with a mallet, like a two pound mallet. And he would beat on this one hopper. It wasn't the main feed. It was a, an additive that was being put into it. And about five minutes after he get back down, the, the readings on the, the, on the, on the uh, what I was measuring, the resistivity would go orders of magnitude all over the map. It was just up and down, up and down. Now I wasn't the polymer scientist, so I didn't know. I knew there was three or four different ingredients getting blended into this thing. And I says, why do you go up there and beat on that? Knowing intuitively that banging on uh, equipment in a manufacturing floor is usually a sign that something's not right. And he goes, oh, it, it uh, cakes in and bridges. And so it won't uh, feed into the process. So some of our product has got none of this in it. Some of it's got a whole pile in it. And it says, yeah, I noticed right after you, a couple minutes after you whack on it, there's a whole pile of something and they're changing things. And he goes, and so instead of reporting it, that's the way he learned that process is every 10, 15 minutes, go up and hit this thing. That was just unwritten part of the procedure. And it was such a dirty process. It was an area that was hot and it was sweaty and you had to be in a bunny suit because of the, the chemicals that were there. Um, nobody went and visited them <laughs> very often or the people that did that, that role in the, in the project. Um, so I went and talked to the scientists. It's like, how important is it that this stuff gets blended evenly all the time? It was like critical. And I, oh, okay. How about if we change that hopper so it doesn't cake up or can we do something to feed it more properly, right? But that was purely observational, just watching the sensor and seeing what happens. Now, if I'd been in my office and looking at that same data set, I would have taken much, much longer to figure out that that was a, a pattern of, of Leon going up there and with a mallet and keeping this hopper going. And it was, so some of it is you do need that firsthand experience and identifying correlations. You should understand the process better than I did at that time that you're working on, um, you know, interpreting what you're looking at. But that was happenstance. But I think there is a role that if you put some new equipment out and you put some new systems on the thing, if you put a vibration sensor and you're looking for bearing wear, one, what does a bearing wear signal look like? Two, is there electrical interface that's interfering with your measurement system? I mean, I think you know about gauge R and R. Is your sensor actually telling you what you think it's telling you? Um, and then will it pick up people walking by or forklift driving by? And what do those look like? How, how do we screen those out and ignore them? But much of that has to take place where you're within arm's reach of that sensor. Yeah. To, to know what's going on. You got to get off your, your chair in your office and get down there. Yeah, and I, and I see too many of them where the, even the ads are saying, oh, you know, drop these on the equipment, go back to your office and monitor it. And I'm like, I think you're missing something there. Yeah. I mean, all those signals that you're getting from these sensors or that sensor, it, it's really just a manifestation of what happens at the mas ma machine. Right. Uh, right. So it could be anything. Can, it could be. Could be could be, could be Leroy with his mallet hitting the machine. You know, you never know, taking out his frustration on it. <laughs> or it starts to make a weird sound, so he hits it. And it temporarily puts it back in alignment. Right? You wouldn't know that unless you were there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and also, you know, these experiments, they can just remain experiments, like for oh, a yeah. limited time. It doesn't have to be, hey, I have this sensor. I'll just slap it on the machine and I'll start live streaming data for years because <laughs> well, you may it, not learn more. Oh yeah. No one. Um, I learned the hard way that when your general manager says, do you have a few minutes and you're like the most junior engineer in the plant say, sorry, sir, I'm really busy. <laughs> you know, you can just run away. Um, but I didn't do that. So this general manager, she took me over to a building next door where they, where she had bought this pivotal piece of equipment and wanted to walk through and see what was going on over there and, and, and kind of show off to me that she was a real engineer at one time kind of thing. But while we were there, 
this white coat technician comes out with a clipboard, you know, safety glasses, all that good stuff, and goes out and it's a, um, it's making cabling, very expensive cabling that goes in the, in the aircraft industry. And it was on the order of like $50 a pound. And this was in the eighties. So this was expensive material and we sold it in, or they sold it in 10,000 foot spools. And if it was short of 10,000 feet, then it was scrap. There wasn't a way to splice it or do anything. Nobody wanted it shorter than that. So it was just scrap. And that ended up being tens of thousands of dollars pretty quick of scrap. Oh, wow. So we're following this technician out and like, what's she doing? What's she measuring? This must be important. She looks official. And she goes and she has this little gauge that's like a calibrated 12 inch piece. And she right on the hour, she snips a, a piece of it. The wheel wasn't finished, so it scrapped whatever length was on it was scrapped, and the tech and the person operating the equipment restarted another wheel. And I'm like, that's a lot of scrap. This measurement must be important, right? It's like, and this is and so the sensor in this case was you had to cut a physical piece of it, and it was a slump test. They were measuring um, the ability of the jacket to stay on the material at a, a test temperature. And apparently one of the specifications early on in the design of this thing, um, that was tricky. If they didn't get the process just right or whatever, it would fail that test. And so we walked in and she tested it in the little box and it's heated up for a few minutes. And then it came up with a green light and said, oh, it's good. So she wrote it down in this massive book, right? Now this is even worse if you automate it because then nobody's looking at it, but she wrote it down in a book. The book had, I don't know, 40 entries on it and they were all passed. The previous page, all passed. I started flipping through it, pass, 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 pass. Now I'm curious. That's a very expensive test because of the amount of scrap it produces. Um, and I just asked, what happens if it fails? And she looked at us and said, oh, I don't know. It's never failed since I've been doing this test. And then we thought, well, she's only been doing this a couple of days. But it was her handwriting in this book, page after page. Now, how long have you been doing this? 12 years. Okay. Never had a failure. The requirement was tested every hour, independent of how much scrap it generates. And so that's when I learned that you don't follow a general manager around when he's touring his previous work or her previous work. She looked at me and says, go figure out what's going on here. And it turned out, make a long story short, it turned out that the original material was on the border on the edge of being capable of meeting the requirements. Well, once they figured out that there was a new grade of material, that it would never fail. I mean, even if it was bad, it wouldn't fail this particular test. It never went back and never changed the test regime. Yeah. And, and if you only are watching those numbers from the office, right? If it's automated and it's passing, everything's good. I don't need to look at it. But in the meantime, I'm spending, you know, $100,000 a day in scrap just because I have this requirement to go cut it every hour on the hour. Yep. And so, so they just got rid of the task. And, and unfortunately, I didn't negotiate for 10% of the savings, but that is. It don't work out that way. <laughs> it doesn't work out that way. It was an, and it was a different division than what I worked. So I felt like this, you know, um, outside agent coming in asking embarrassing questions but it is but it you know that and the experience i had with this these other sensors and other systems i was using um makes me pretty skeptical skeptical of set it up and walk away from it because you're going to miss so much uh just is it good and what is it really measuring and where are the opportunities that you're can quickly correlate if you're sitting well you've, you're familiar with quality control charts right when they first really became a fad basically everybody put control charts on everything and they put it on anything they could measure independent oh, yeah. of whether it actually provided any useful information to improve the process that you still know. happens you know <laughs> oh yeah i know it does and it's so I don't really care if it's the shiny new internet of things with wireless connectivity and post-processing to give you a pretty graph. We've been through this before. We should have learned that just because you can doesn't mean it's useful. 
And more importantly, if it is useful, you actually got to look at it and do something with it. And, and that's all too often missed. So that's my yeah. bone to pick with these systems. Now, on the other hand, they can be exceedingly valuable, right? When they're done well, and they might be deliberately set up as prototypes and learning examples, and then you move it to where the next opportunity is. So I like these portable small uh, vibration sensors because you don't really need a thousand of them in your plant. It, you know, it, you need it where it's needed and, and then move it. Once you get this process under control and you understand this frequency of repairs or lubrication, you optimize all those things, move to the next one and focus on it. But if I put a thousand sensors in the plant, I don't have time to look at them. It's going to yeah. be a summary and it's not going to be useful. It's going to be an aggregation of whatever it is that you're measuring and it's not going to make any sense or you're going to see you know you're going to see an effect showing up where there's no effect like oh yeah well yeah so there's data, that too yeah. you have so much data it's like oh everything's significant <laughs> so well that's yeah. that's what i warned these guys about on the they were there one project that got involved in was is they had i don't know like 600 streams of data coming in there it says what does this mean to us here's our output our quality output or throughput per day all these so they had about 20 things they were interested in which of these things correlated and i said the 600 inputs there's probably four or five that will correlate just by chance so let's let's sit down and talk to the engineers a bit here because if i measure vibration on a motor in line a and you're interested in the quality of a, a line that's in a different building i think the vibration over there is going to have little to nothing to do with the the purity of the system you got over in this other building so let's think this through a little bit what we're really looking for before we start just doing random data analysis. So what is your advice? Like, I guess in a few steps, what is your advice on determining like what it is that is worth measuring or you wanna measure when I'm a log? Like, do you have like a, a, a process that works for you? We've talked about, you know, running experiments, understanding, but maybe wrapping it into like a, like a model that one could follow. Yeah, in general, I don't have it written down anywhere. I should probably write an article on it. Um, but you will. <laughs> probably. <laughs> the, the basic idea is, is that measurements cost money. doesn't matter whether it's automated or not. Just if you got a, something that gets the, the information, the sensor, and then you usually have to do something to store the data and or interpret it or do something with it. That all takes time and money. So first start with what is it you're trying to understand? Not what you wanna measure, what is it you wanna understand? So the example I used earlier was I, I wanted to understand the causes of variability in our manufacturing process and, and to improve the consistency and, and quality reliability of our product. And so starting with an objective like that then leads you to well, what's the understanding we have? What do we know? What do we don't know? How do we, how do we go about, um, it's like a regular problem solving adventure at that point, right? Well, what information do I need, right? Or what data do I need? Start with, you need this data, then go get it you know, or generate it or find it. it as opposed to, I got a way to measure something, what can I do with it? I yeah. can spend a whole lot of time having the existing measurements off my equipment and solve absolutely trivial problems. Let's solve the ones that are worth solving. And sometimes that means you gotta go find new data or, or a way to measure it. Uh, the third part is don't forget that just because it's a, a sensor doesn't mean that it's any good. There are different grades of tele, or, uh, thermocouples, and some of them plus or minus 10 degrees. And if you're what you're trying to do is, you know, you need to be better than one Celsius. Well, the off the shelf one down at Home Depot is just not going to work for you. Right. So be conscious of the technology's capabilities, where its weaknesses are, and always, always do a gauge R&R &R or, or a similar measurement system analysis, because it's really painful to learn that you've been taking action and changing things and causing havoc in the production line 
chasing a phantom because your sensor is light sensitive. You didn't know that. And it varies with the number amount of light in the, in the room or whatever it could be. So make sure you got a, a good system, whether it's manual or automated. Um, by the way, calibration has nothing to do most of the time with how good the sensor is for what you need it to be. You could be perfectly calibrated, but just generating random numbers for your application. Um, and then it's, it depends on how familiar I, if you really do need to learn this technology, if I'm the first time I'm using a vibration sensor, then I need to experiment. I need to spend time with it, understand it, maybe go to some classes, you know, learn about it, spend the time to really understand what it's doing. But sometimes you get a sensor just to do experiments to enable being able to look at other things. So again, it's the gauge R and R and the measurement system now helps, but you still need to understand what is it actually measuring versus what is it you th you're think you're trying to interpret it as, you know, is that the physics between what it's measuring and what you got. If you put a thermocouple on the wall of a chamber, you'll get the temperature of the wall. If you put it in the air of the chamber, you'll get the temperature of the air in that location. If you want to know what the average temperature is in there, then one sensor is just not going to do it for you. So think through what you're really trying to achieve and understand and measure, and then, then design your measurement system and go do it. Um, and then I have an exit plan. I, I learned this in that same factory. I learned a lot in that factory is if you're going to do something to the line, it has a date when it expires in that if nobody objects, we're going to take it out. If it's not adding value, we take it out because we don't need to generate data that nobody's using. And just let it sit there, right? Yeah, or turn it off. But we would get it out of the way because every one of those sensors takes time and energy and money to maintain or to gather data or even just to store data, even if nobody's looking at it. Yeah. So have an exit plan. Part of anything we did on the floor included how do we know it's working, right? And how do we know when we're done? Because we want to unplug it. And, you know, a factory has been running for 10 years. You can imagine how many sensors are left all over the place. You know, you yeah. sweep them up on the floor. So that's the basic process. And, it, you know, it's, um, I had a boss one time that said we had to do a weekly report of what we were doing and update on our projects and all the other stuff. And so one week I just ran out of time and just didn't get it to him. And he didn't say anything. I kept expecting that call or you know, knock on the door and say, hey, where's your report, blah, blah, blah. And, and I talked to him pretty regularly because I mean, we sat next to each other, basically. And so I deliberately skipped it the next week. It's a pain in the butt. <laughs> it's like, you know, if you're not paying attention, that's not my fault. I'm not going to give you a summary, <laughs> you know, kind of thing. And then it went a couple of months. And then we're chatting one time at lunch and, and, he, and he said, I noticed you haven't been sending the reports, but I already know what you're doing because you tell me every day, you know, what you're working on, what you're struggling with, how's it going? You know, I don't worry about it with you, but it's a policy. I make everybody do it because some people, I really don't know what they're doing. <laughs> I need, I feel like I need to build a case to fire them. And it's like, oh, well, I'm glad I'm not being considered to get fired at the time. <laughs> but <laughs> the, the same applies to just generating data. You know, if he, if you haven't looked at it, get rid of it, you know, just, you know, put it on a loop. So you, if you are keeping it just in case something goes wrong and you want to look at your data for that particular run, well, if you're doing a one week run on your equipment, on your line, keep two weeks worth, <laughs> keep it at only as long as you need to and get rid of the data at the end of the day. Um, but if nobody's looking at it and it's not useful for any perceived Motion, you know, post, you know, reason or rationale to get rid of it. It, it cleaning house periodically and on a regular basis is a, is a good step in it. And then the final step in this process is quantify the value of what you do with that sensor. Right. So, I mean, the, the, the that same story with the sensor of this resistivity on this on this polymer product we're making. Um, just that it was happenstance that I noticed that he was up there banging on this feeder and we went back and updated that, that 
the, the way that powder was being pushed into the extruding process. So it was much more consistent. Um, the poor, the operators didn't have to trudge up and down there anymore, except to fill it up. And so it, it also saved a lot of our motors because they were banging on the side of this thing. And that's not good for your bearings or alignment or augers or any of that stuff. So it saved us material costs. It saved us operator time. It, but the biggest payoff was, is that the, it was orders of magnitude um, more stable, more consistent. So as you can imagine going here, we're going to dump a whole bunch of powder in this thing and then hope it averages out over the whole length. And it doesn't. <laughs> it just never did. So depending on where you scooped into this batch, you would get radically different values. But after the change in that uh, hopper and that feeding system, uh, it it went from you know standard deviation of a thousand to a standard deviation of ten. It was like three orders of magnitude more consistent. Consistent, yeah. Right, and then we were able to to run that out into the yield loss downstream for the other processes. And we run that out to performance in our products and energy consumption for our customers. I mean, it, we calculated gazillion dollars in a number of different ways that having the right sensor and observing this phenomena that was causing variability saved us a gazillion dollars. And it made getting the next experiment to go find a sensor a whole lot easier, right? Because we, did it well and learned something and made a difference. But just adding a sensor and saying, oh, we're collecting that data is not an objective. It is for the people that sell it, but it's not for an ops manager. You know, if you're gonna put something on my line, it better produce some useful information, something tangible that we can take action on. And if it doesn't, don't do it. And so- Stop doing it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, or stop doing it. So or don't do it at all, just because it's not a good excuse or good rationale to justify doing something. But make it a practice to quantify what you've learned and what you've uh, actually made a difference because you use this X, Y, or Z sensor. And if getting in the habit of that then makes it, you, you can prioritize which ones are actually useful and which ones aren't, which ones actually save us money, which ones don't. And then you get a, a track record of picking the right types of measurement systems because you're solving the right kind of problems that actually save you money. And a lot of engineers shy away from that because it sounds too much like that's all the business side of things. I'm just gonna do good engineering. Well, good engineering makes a difference. In most organizations, that means it saves us money or makes us money. <laughs> you know, It's not just because it's fun. Although yeah. sometimes it you get to fun. do that, which is fun. <laughs> it is fun, but yeah. yeah. There's, there's a, there's a, there's a purpose. <laughs> that's right. And, then, and that's the part it starts the process, right? What's the, what are we doing this for? What's the purpose? And then it ends by, by quantifying how well that achieved the purpose. And, and I rarely see engineers take the time to quantify that. They move on to their next project. And, and then it's like, well, what good was this last one? Well, I don't know. I didn't track that. I, we learned a lot. Okay. So <laughs> what difference did it make you know that kind of stuff so, next time right right yeah good this is uh, yeah this is all great advice thank thank you so much this is this is helpful okay so um before we wrap up um uh, it is random question time okay so uh every <clears throat> every episode i have a list of random questions out of which i will ask you just a few uh, starting with what gets you excited and out of bed every day? Um, well, it's the anticipation that I'm going to get a question from a former student, from somebody that visits the website or, you know, somebody I worked with in the past um, that I can actually help with. Right. It's, it's, you know, the Ascendo is, free by and large, unless you take one of the courses or buy one of our books, but by and large, and those, they're not even heavily advertised. What makes it work for me and why I put so much energy into it is that every now and then I get a message from somebody saying, Hey, your articles is my professional development process. And, but I've got, you know, or I've got a question on this, this, and this, can you help me out? And then I get feedback saying that made all the difference in the world. Thanks. 
You know, sometimes I don't hear it, but I get questions uh, of, about an article or about how to apply something or what's a good resource for, or should I go to this conference or how do we become a consultant and everything in between. Uh, probably on the average of between one and three per day. So wow. I spend, you know, only spend 15 minutes, an hour max, if I have a pile of questions, um, responding to all those things. So it's, um, what gets me started is, well, you know, what, how can I help somebody today? And, and it's, it's anecdotal that I know it's working, uh, but it's gratifying to get somebody's response saying, hey, thanks, that helped. Because there aren't that many other people that won't, that will, will do that. So I feel like it's a service. It's a payback for all the people who helped me learn what I've learned over the years, you know, so pay it forward or pay it back or whatever they call it. Um, but it's also uh, an intentional desire that as a quality professional or reliability professional, that we're all in the same game. We're not in competition with each other. You know, if we all do a better job, one, we all benefit because our products are better, right? But we also become more valued part of our organizations. And that's always a good thing. And so yeah. that gets me going is, is open up the mail and see what interesting questions or dilemmas or problems I can help with. That's great. Wow. Great answer. <laughs> well, that, that, and I want some coffee too. So there's a trade-off. It's either answering questions or get coffee. So most of the time coffee is first and then I go open email. So I have to be honest, it's, it's coffee. It is coffee. Definitely yeah. coffee for me. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. So where do you see the future of reliability and quality going in the next, say, five years? Do you foresee or are you already seeing any trends or shifts? I see two paths, and I think they'll happen simultaneously. For the organizations, teams, individuals that add little to no quantifiable value, the quintessential white lab code at the end of the line saying this fails or that fails, they're going to go away. We don't have the space or bandwidth or time or luxury to have people that don't add value to the organization. And so the people that get it, they understand that if I'm going to put a sensor on this thing, I need to be pretty sure that it's actually going to add a lot of value to more than justify not only the cost of the sensor, but the time of everybody involved with interpreting it and using it, maintaining it. So for the folks that actually add value, they get involved with influencing decisions that make a difference. They're going to be revered in, in an integral part of teams. They may not even be called quality or reliability engineers anymore. They might be directors of engineering or they might be this or that. Longer term in five years, I see that these titles just go away. They're really not necessary as titles. If the culture of the organization takes care of quality and reliability and it's built into the culture, and I've seen plenty of organizations that just don't have titled reliability engineers. Yet the electrical engineer knows about derating and, and the Arrhenius equation. The, the lab techs know how to run accelerated tests and set up measurement systems. The, you know, other people know how to do measurement system analysis. Other people know how to quantify the value of reducing a failure rate. None of them were called reliability engineers, but they could do FMEAs and HALTs and ALTs and control charts and everything else with the best of them. And when they didn't know a tool, they would hire somebody to go do it. So long-term, I think the titles of quality and reliability will diminish in their presence in the companies, in the companies that actually do well, that really focus on creating reliable and quality products. Um, but it, coupled with that is that the role of the gig worker, you know, you're going to get called in to do the, the, set up a control chart or you're going to get set up to implement you know the sensor system and the first question you ask is why are you doing this what's the purpose <laughs> if you're not then you're not going to be in that business very long um but i, I think the trend is um going to focus on do you make a difference because it's getting easy and easier to tell you know we're, we're tracking business metrics so much closer than we were years ago profit margins are getting thinner in all kinds of industries oh, and yeah. so there's nowhere to hide if you're not adding value okay my next question um relates to 
you know, part of your answer uh, from the previous question. So what is your top, I don't know, top three piece of advice um, for folks, you know, in quality or reliability who are trying to, you know, up their game? Like, how do I get better from a technical perspective, from a, from a management perspective? Overall, how do I get better as a quality or reliability professional? What do I need to learn? What kind of knowledge do I need to uh, gain, acquire, what skills, and so on and so forth, in your opinion? Um, there's a, what comes to mind, and I've advised a number of different people this, is that there's a couple elements. One is always be looking for your next job. <laughs> it's just good practice. And if you find a really cool one and somebody you know would be a good fit for it, it doesn't hurt to help somebody else find a, a dream job. So I'd say always be looking for a job. Um, two, on the, on the technical skill side, and this one I see it is it's too many people just go to the conference and they sit through it and they go sit in the hotel pool. Or if the conference is held in like Disney World, I went to one there and they had uh, like 800 registrants, but they never had more than 300 people ever in the attendance. So it was just a boondoggle for a bunch of people. What a missed opportunity to learn and to network and to you know explore all kinds of topics. So the second piece of advice is really um, that old adage, you should learn, try to learn something new every day. No, you should be learning all the time from every handshake to every conversation, to every presentation, to every data analysis you do, to every observation you make. You have literally hundreds, if not thousands of opportunities to learn something. Ask questions. Always ask questions. You know, if you're at a, a forum with the, your boss's boss and they say, are there any questions? Ask a question. <laughs> Just be prepared. Walk in like a reporter. Ask a question. Um, but always, always have a thirst to learn. Just practice it and do it every day, all the time. And, and you will incrementally get better and better and better. If you wait until you all of a sudden need to know regression analysis and you haven't taken the steps to learn the basics of it, you're at a great disadvantage to the other person that had just incrementally taken opportunities to learn it. So always learn. Um, and third, and I think most importantly, is get used to the idea of, of making proposals that show that what you're proposing has a good return on investment, right? It's a business thing. And it's outside of the scope for anything ever taught to reliability engineers or quality engineers, right? Even the black belt folks, they wait till after the experiments are all done and then they quantify what difference they made. Well, that's too late. You're never going to get funded. In oh, today's yeah. day and age, you've got to show that this is going to make a difference or is a very good likelihood to make the difference. Or here's the milestones that we know are on track to make a difference. Think that through. And then simultaneously, as you are running experiments or you're making changes or you're are providing advice or whatever, track how much that really matters. What was the value actually created? Um, one of the numbers uh, that a lot of people don't know is what's the cost of warranty per unit shipped? A lot of us know what the cost of a warranty claim is. We might be able to find that pretty easily. Or what's the cost of a failed product to a customer? We might even know that in our, our, inside our product development team. But very few people know that um, what's the cost per unit shipped. And as soon as you do that, that equation to figure out, do I add five cents to this component to reduce its failure rate by X amount becomes trivial because I can calculate What's the change in failure rate to how much it's going to affect the failure rate, the number of failures we get, we know the cost per failure. And now I can calculate it back to that cost per unit shipped. And just about every single time I've used or talked about, understand the value you're creating. I always use failure rate because it's typically the easiest one for most people to wrap their hands up. It's by far not the only way to create value. Reducing the risk of a delayed shipment by some activity you're doing to make it clear that we're on target and not on, or, you know, we're, we're good or not good or something like that. That can reduce the risk and it has real value, but it's an aside. But by knowing the cost per unit ship, the warranty cost per unit ship, 
just, I think there's only been one occasion out of maybe 300 times I've worked with teams on this, that it wasn't either the number one or number two most expensive component in that box that you were shipping out. So like a laptop costs, you know, a thousand dollars. Well, the warranty per unit shipped was a hundred dollars. The most expensive component was the CPU for $95. We spent years trying to get the CPU reduced in cost. We ignored the warranty. Oh, wow. Right. But it was the number one cost driver for that product was the warranty claims. And as soon as that becomes clear, the light bulbs go off and, and now it's easy to calculate value. And, and so it, 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 so get used to the idea that if you're going to do an FMEA, it's easy to count how many people are there, how many hours you spent and how much that costs you. What's not so easy is, well, what difference did it make? Unless yeah. you track it. I like that. I've seen a lot. Yeah. So great. Just become religious about um, uh, looking for your next job, make your boss a little scared, especially these day and age with a great resignation. Um, always learn and always quantify value. Great advice. Thank you. Thanks. So who was your most influential, uh, influential mentor? Uh, it's been a handful of people, uh, all, you know, at different times. Uh, but I would say it was Dick Moss. He's, he wrote, he was the HP quality manager uh, at corporate. His entire staff was him. So this is Hewlett Packard at the time was uh, between a 50 billion and $80 billion company. And it wasn't nowadays that sounds small. I think there's startups that are bigger than that. Uh, but at that time it was like in the top 10 size corporations in the, in the U S and the, the entire quality department was one person because enough customers wanted to meet the quality manager. They had to have somebody for him to meet. Um, but he single-handedly with the help in guiding a lot of other people saved the company billions and billions of dollars uh, have, and instilled a culture of improving reliability and, and reliability all the way through. So I had the fortune to overlap with him for a couple of years before I retired. And then for many years after that, he'd stop by for lunch and we'd go for a walk and I could pick his brain and he'd give me advice. Uh, but yeah, I can remember lots and lots of conversations that I go, yeah, I never thought of it that way. <laughs> That's great. And, uh, no, he's by far my, uh, but yeah, there's, it goes back to that learning all the time. I've had a director of engineer, uh, engineering that was, you, you should, everybody has to do an experiment every day. And at first that was a pain because we had all kinds of other stuff we needed to be doing. We had experiments that would take weeks to do if we worked on them full time, but now he wants us to do one every day. And you learn a lot about experimentation and data analysis yes. and statistics doing it all the time. Uh, That's how you get good at it, right? Yeah. And another boss would come by and she would, she's brilliant. She knew this technology we were working on. She knew all this stuff exceedingly well. And I'd ask her a question, hoping it would shortcut my time to solve a problem. And she'd never answer the question. She would never tell me, oh, that's a 3.2 you know, milligrams and you're fine or whatever the answer was eventually going to be. She said, well, look at it this way. She would just change the frame of how you looked at stuff. And so it was, what I learned from her was, you know, sometimes you're looking at it the wrong way and just set, reset your frame, go. And she also said one time, and I even tested this. She said, at Hewlett Packard, you're rarely more than three questions, three people away from somebody that knows the answer, which is why I asked her questions all the time. Um, but one day I, I opened um, up, we had phone books. This is a while ago. I opened the phone book to a random number I called it and I asked her a question that I knew that the company's expert was sitting across the hall from me. And I knew that it's pretty much, he was the only one that knew the answer, but other people would know that he knew it. But I called a sales representative in Ohio. Um, and she said, you know, I don't really know um, the answer to that, but it sounds like I, that uh, Bill in Colorado would probably know or know somebody that did it. And I called Bill and Bill says, well, that's a good question. I don't really know the answer it, but I bet, and he named the person sitting across the hall from me. And I started completely random. 
And it's even got better if you just ask you know, somebody you thought would really help you. So anyway, it was, uh, yeah, lots and lots of mentors, but I think Dick Moss is most pivotal. Great. Yeah, we all need mentors. No, yes. <laughs> yeah, and Great. I don't think any of them ever said they were meant my mentor. It's just that I took the opportunity of every conversation to learn something from them. So it's yes. back to that learning piece. Yeah, and I I also find that like asking for a person to officially be your mentor. I mean, sure, you can do that, but uh, it's not really about them agreeing to be your mentor. It's about you willing to learn from them. Yes. Right. Exactly. Whether or not you call them or they're they're called mentors or not, anyone can be anyone's mentor. It's yep. it's really the relationship that uh, that matters to me. Yeah, Good. definitely agree. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. This was a super fun conversation. About, yeah, I agree. Uh, we should talk more often. <laughs> before we uh, wrap up today, how do folks get a hold of you? You have your website. Uh, is there a direct way that they can reach out? If, I, if, you, if you're not getting enough requests or messages. Nah, well, it comes and goes, but I, I encourage if anybody's got a question or wants to get in touch, that's great. That's fine. Um, you know, if it's too busy, then I get a shorter answer. That's all. Um, uh, actually, somebody asked me this a couple of weeks ago, and I thought, I don't want to spell my last name, which is the easiest way to get to me. You just spell Shankleberg out and reliability, and you get 15 pages of Google results. But I said, I ran the experiment. I just put in Fred space reliability and hit search. And I got me all over the place. And I thought, wait a sec. Google knows that I'm on my browser and this is me and that kind of thing. So I was obviously looking for myself. So I tried a private browser. It still got me. So it's easy just to look for Fred reliability. And your name it. is Fred reliability. Fred reliability, but that's not my name. Sure. You can find me that way. Uh, AscendoReliability.com. There's an about page there. It has all my contact info um, on LinkedIn. Happy to connect and, and, stay in touch with folks and it's an easy way to communicate if you like doing that um pretty much anything works except smoke signals because i don't know how to read them anywhere i live that's usually scary to see a bunch of smoke in the sky the vibration <laughs> and whatnot yeah yeah whatever works for you uh but the seems most of the questions i get is a combination of linkedin and just direct email those are usually the the, the ones i yeah, see LinkedIn most common most of the time yeah yeah Great. Yeah, you should definitely check out Fred's website. A ton of good information out there on there. Thank you. Thanks again, Fred. And uh, let's keep on learning. Oh, yeah. Good. Well said. Thanks a lot. I appreciate you listening to the show. Thank you for all your support. If you find these conversations valuable, please spread the word on Critical Talks and don't forget to give us a five-star rating. If you have a specific topic that you'd like to chat with me about, feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn and we'll get you on the show. All right, I will catch you in another episode of Critical Talks. In the meantime, stay curious and keep on learning.